The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm your host, Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is uh, Robert Grady. Robert is, um, has an MBA from Emory University. He's an author, he's a marketer, he's an entrepreneur, he's the president of Grady Company, which is a consulting firm based in Milwaukee that specializes in marketing and strategic planning. He has worked with uh, marketers such as McDonald's, Procter & Gamble, Union Carbide, and United Airlines, a very impressive list as well as a variety of small businesses. He's a syndicated columnist and regular contributor to the Milwaukee journal Sentinel model retailer magazine and others Uh, and he's going to be talking to us today about his new book naked marketing the bare essentials welcome to the show nice to have you on this morning robert oh thank you Catherine. nice to be here well uh obviously i think your book is timely Uh, this as i understand it this is the third book you have uh, in in this edition uh so this is uh cutting edge kinds of uh information about marketing um and we are seeing as you and i discussed earlier before we got on the show the rise of the entrepreneur um and there will be more and more men and women operating their own small specialized businesses but one of the places it seems that they get stuck in is marketing. Marketing has a bad rap. So hence, Naked Marketing, The Bare Essentials. What is it and who's it for, Robert? Catherine, Naked Marketing is designed for people who need to get market smart quickly and painlessly. It's a very easy read. It is not an academic tome by any means. It's made for those people who really need to understand the marketing function very quickly. Simple, easy read um it's it's really um those it's for those venturing into the marketing jungle for the first time frankly those who have already been there can probably skip it and move on to the double jeopardy round but for those like i I use the example of dilbert even if he is not the marketing person in his company he needs to understand the marketing function he looks at marketing like a bunch of people in la la land and marketing really is a necessary function of every business. Yeah, I think that's where people get stuck. I mean, in my experiences, and I know those people that you talk about in the book, people who are, they start a business, um, they think they have a good product, and if you have a good product and you run the business well, then it's really not essential to market the business, which obviously is not true. Um, and we're talking about entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, small business people. Um, and you know what? That's where, I mean, in my experience, and I'm kind of repeating this, my own experience, uh, where I've gotten stuck in the past, and 
I want to give you an example because I want you to comment on this in, in relation to your book. Um, sure. I was at a, a wedding last weekend and my uh, friend's daughter, and she made cookies for this wedding and she made, a, you know, beautiful cookies and all kinds of pastries and stuff. And her daughter said, oh, Ma, you should really go into business because you could really sell these cookies. And I thought... Well, the cookies are great, but there are thousands of other women and men who make cookies that are just as good. So it's all going to be in the marketing. But I know that neither her daughter nor she even considered that. And so it kind of fits in with, I think, what we're talking about today. Catherine, I think that's a perfect example. Um, During this most recent recession, an awful lot of very talented people were downsized and began starting their own businesses. Um, some, I'd read statistics say that there are like half a million new firms that were started in 2012 alone. Well, most of those people are people who have a firm understanding of how to build a product or bake a cookie but uh, or offer any type of service. It may be a service organization as well. But whatever the case, they're very, very good technicians. They're very good at offering that product and making that product or offering that service. What they don't know how to do is really how to market it, how to bring it to, to the market. With cookies, let's use your, your friend's uh, mother's example. Um, she's got a great cookie, but how is she going to get it into the distribution channel? How will she make sure that stores have it on their shelves or will she sell them online or how, how is she going to distribute them? That would be my first question. Also, how is she going to differentiate herself from all the other great cookie makers out there? Uh, you made the, the point very um, succinctly when you said a lot of people make good cookies. How does she differentiate her cookies from all the other great tasting cookies out there? So those are the kinds of things that Naked Marketing, the Bare Essentials, addresses. How to differentiate yourself and create an image or a brand for your product. How to identify who your customers are, what their hot buttons are, and how to communicate your differences and your image and your brand to that target market. How to get your product into the marketplace, into the distribution channels. All of those kinds of things are the fundamental aspects of marketing, naked marketing addresses. All right. Given that, in your book, you talk about the do's and the don'ts. Maybe taking one of those or several of those topics and tell us, what are some of the do's of doing that, of knowing the market, developing a marketing plan, and what are some of the don'ts that we don't want to do? Well, the first thing, Catherine, I would say is make sure you have a marketing plan. You said, what are some of the do's of a marketing plan? Well, that makes the assumption that you even have one. A lot of people don't, or they think themselves one-person, three-person companies. They think, well, the marketing plan's in my head. I know what I need to do. I know where I want to go. But you know what? You don't stick to it. You're so busy wrestling with alligators that you forget that you wanted to drain that swamp. You really forget about having that marketing plan, that long-term vision. One of the biggest don'ts I always say is is don't let the next glib-talking salesperson peddling, I hate to say it, but radio time or any kind of, of advertising media, <laughs> yeah, walking into your <laughs> office and telling you, hey, you've got to buy an ad on my, on my uh, station or you've got to put an ad in my newspaper or my magazine and here's why and all of these great things. And then you look at that person and think, well, you know what? That sounds like a good idea. And you open up your checkbook and you say, well, I've got a couple of extra bucks here. I'll write out a check. I'll try this advertising and see if it works. And by golly, you have no long-term plan, no vision, no strategy. The advertising doesn't work. And you sit back and you say, well, advertising doesn't work. <laughs> and you, real, you don't realize, frankly, that you had the wrong strategy. Or worse, the biggest don't is 
don't let that sales rep write your ad copy for you. He or she doesn't know your business, doesn't know your strategy, doesn't know where you want to take your business. And, and if that person was a good copywriter, that person would probably not be selling advertising. They'd be a copywriter. And so you really want to make sure that you've, you don't just take the next person who walks into your office with a good line and, and look at your checkbook. That's called the affordable method of budgeting. And it's so what you have to do to... is, I guess what you're saying is what you have to do, then you do. You have to write it down. You have to have a marketing plan that's written down. So, But what do you say to people because they, you know, when they think about a marketing plan, just from a practical standpoint, a small business owner, maybe somebody who's in business with one partner, has you know, two employees, it's too tedious. I don't want to go through the whole process of writing a whole marketing plan. Does it have to be some sophisticated, complex plan or can it be simple? It's very, very simple if you, uh, if you understand the basics. Naked Marketing actually has a sample marketing plan in it. It's really a fill-in-the-blanks form. Small business, it's perfect for small businesses. If you're a large, complex company with multiple divisions and multiple targets and multiple consumer and B2B-type products, Naked Marketing probably is, is going to be too simple. The marketing plan in, in Naked Marketing, though, is one that's very simple to fill out. There's only five parts. You fill out each of the five parts, and bingo, you've got a long-term plan that you can follow. You can modify it. One of the good things about a marketing plan is it is modifiable, and it should be because the marketplace changes. Competitors come out with competitive products. Uh, they come out with new ad campaigns that, that may address some of your products. You have to make some changes as you go. That's the beauty of having a long-term plan that is flexible. Naked Marketing lays it out very simply. It doesn't have to be a complex project. It doesn't have to be something that takes hours, days, even weeks to put together. You can put together a, a good marketing plan in an evening if you have a template, which Naked Marketing does. All right. So given that you have your marketing plan, what, I don't know if this is the next step, but you talk about determining the company image. How do you do that? And give us an example let's say, in the book of uh, not a cookie company, let's do another one, some other kind of company, uh, entrepreneurial, small entrepreneurial company, where you have to determine a company image. What's my image going to be? Well, let's try, a, let's try a business-to-business example, a B2B example. Um, let's say you're a manufacturing company and you make, we'll make up a product, call it a widget. If your company makes widgets, how are you going to differentiate and find the point of difference for your widgets from all of the other widget manufacturers out there, you have to identify, first of all, the demographics. If you have customers already, the easiest thing to do is use what I call the 80-20 rule, Catherine. You, you recognize that 20%, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 20% of your customers represent 80% of your sales. 80% of your sales are going to come from just a few good customers. What do they have in common? What are the key attributes that those customers have in common? Let's say they're all geographically located near your city. You're in Albany, New York. All of your customers are located within a 100-mile radius of Albany, New York. All right, well, that makes sense then that you want to try and attract more companies that use widgets from Albany, New York, or the greater Albany area. All right, then the next step is what else do they have in common? Are they all large companies, small companies? Do they all sell to certain people? Do they all have certain characteristics that are similar? So you want to target similar companies. Then how do you differentiate your product? Are you, do you deliver faster? Is your product more dependable? Does it last longer? 
I like to say that there are three aspects that you should look at. Quality, service, and price. Differentiate yourself using the QS&P formula, quality, service, or price. Is your company of better, are your widgets of better quality? Do you provide faster service, a better warranty, better delivery times, uh, and or is your widget priced better, better credit terms, better warranty? What is it about your product that you can say is better than the competition? And then hammer that home time and time again. Make sure every part of your advertising and promotion methods include that message. Is it? I think service is a big one today. I mean, I, I because I think that's been a problem at least over the past few years. Not getting good service. I don't know how. Well, you fits hit the into, nail on the head on that yeah. one, Catherine. That's yeah. the biggest differentiator. <laughs> no question about it. Um, a lot of people claim that quality today is a commodity. There, uh, what I develop new on Monday is on the internet on Tuesday, is being de-engineered on Wednesday, re-engineered and developed on Thursday, and is back on the market as a new product on Friday. Competition is such that almost all quality improvements can be commoditized. They can be replicated very, very quickly. And so the difference maker, the real difference maker, is going to be in service. That's where we have to differentiate ourselves. If I can provide that service better, faster, more dependably than my competition, I will stand out. The guy who is able to be remembered for that service difference is going to be the game. That's the game changer. That's the guy who's going to make it in our competitive world today. Oh, well, that's it. We just were talking about business to business. Okay, well, let's talk about some other kinds of businesses, not business to business necessarily. What would you, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, let's say starting a restaurant, uh, a small restaurant, because people, I think, have many times, you know, this fantasy, I'll start a restaurant, and uh, just because I'm, I, I like being with people, and I like, uh, you know, I'm a good cook, and I want to be out with the public, so automatically I'm going to be able to provide, you know, be successful at the restaurant business. And, and also, you know, I'm a baby boomer, and lots of uh, even friends and colleagues of mine who are changing businesses or deciding to do something in the second part of their life very often go into the restaurant business for some reason. Well, um, two things I will say right off the top about that. First of all, um, it's be prepared for long hours and few holidays. Uh, restaurants are open on holidays and weekends. So, you know, that's my first, whenever people come to me and say, help me market my restaurant, I'm thinking of opening a new restaurant. Um, that's my first comment is, wow, are you prepared to work evenings Long hours, washing glasses, filling in when somebody doesn't show up, all the negatives that happen with, with that. And, and second thing I would say is it's the number one failure in the, all businesses, restaurants. They come and go very, very quickly. Now, that said, let's go back and say, all right, if you're determined and you think you have a, a, um, a good business model and a great location, those are two things I would, I would put first on the list. And you have adequate financing because that's the second thing I would put on the list. You go through money very quickly in a new restaurant. Um, I would then say, let's determine how you're going to differentiate yourself. Based on your location and what part of town you're in, are you in the hip and trendy part of town? Are you in a busy intersection type of place? Are you going to be upscale, mid-scale, family restaurant? Where, what is your niche? How are we going to differentiate you from all of the other great restaurants? Can we do it based on your menu? Are you ethnic-based? Uh, are you going to serve ethnic food? Or are you going to have recipes that no one else has? 
Do you have a particular training at, at uh, CIA, the, the Culinary Institute, for example? Are you um, a, a brilliant chef so that we can offer that as a point of difference? What are the things that are going to differentiate you from your competition? Because folks have lots of different options. We can go out to eat. We can eat at home. We can order out. You know, there are all sorts of different options that we have. How are you going to entice me to come to your restaurant? And that's going to be done with, again, quality service or price. And when we talk about quality, we can talk about it in lots of different ways in terms of recipes, as I mentioned, or the quality of the chefs, those sorts of things. Service is is paramount. Nothing will hurt you worse than bad service because word of mouth in the restaurant business is critical. Only motion pictures are more, it's more critical to the success of a business. And and research says motion pictures is number one word of mouth. Number two uh, is, is restaurant business. If you get bad word of mouth, you're dead. So you've got to make sure that you encourage good word of mouth. Be ready for that opening day and make sure everybody is talking positively Always. That's why whenever you're being served at a restaurant, about the third bite of your food, the waiter comes around and says, how is everything? And the reason is because word of mouth is so important in that industry. Speaking of word of mouth, how does do websites like TripAdvisor and Yelp fit into this? Because now the consumer has some recourse when you don't like something, and a restaurant is the perfect example, or a hotel, or uh, those kinds of services. So... When you're talking about word of mouth, talk to us about TripAdvisor. Well, I tell you, word of mouth used to be one person on average would tell four or five others. Now it's gotten to be 40 or 50, and with Yelp and things like that, people are talking about hundreds or even thousands of influenced people based upon reviews like that. I'll have to tell you a perfect example. Traditionally, every year, my wife and I go to a B&B for our anniversary. Well, this year, I decided, uh, you know, I was looking up B&Bs, and I went to Yelp, for example, and looked at some of the reviews. I disincluded one particular one that I had been high on. I thought, wow, this looks like the perfect opportunity. It's on water. It looks like a beautiful place. It got terrible rev- several terrible reviews on Yelp. So I immediately backed off and said, you know what, I think I'll choose another place. Those t- the Internet has made word-of-mouth influence far more dramatic than it has been in the past. The last five or seven years uh, in the growth of Internet um, websites that feature reviews and, and has, has multiplied the influence of individuals dramatically. Um, if you, a lot of companies, here's an example, a lot of companies monitor websites, whether it's LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, uh, Yelp, um, all of the various Facebook and Twitter, all of the various social media to, to, to look for their names. My wife uh, has discovered that with, I, I don't want to name the, uh, the, the provider, but our television and Internet is all serviced through one particular provider. She has called the toll-free number and waited and waited and waited and been told that, oh, we're busy right now, we'll get to you in half an hour. And she has gone online and complained online and had them call us within 10 minutes. So I can tell you that a lot of companies monitor those social media to find out what people are saying about them. If she complains online, bingo, somebody calls her within 10 minutes. I tell you, that that has a lot to do with this word-of-mouth response. If you have bad service, 
you don't want it being spread. And that's one of the points we make in Naked Marketing is how to avoid those. That's one of the don'ts. Don't let bad service bury you. And so we talk in Naked Marketing about how to find what people are saying about you and how to spread positive word of mouth because there are ways to spread it. Catherine, if people yeah, talk, yeah, explo- is that when I mean, was that the next category of exploiting publicity? Oh is, yeah, is it, if people yeah. are saying good things about it, you can retweet, you can you can you can forward those on Facebook. There are all sorts of ways on social media on the internet to to favorite certain positive things that are said about you. I even have uh, I I won't tell you again the product, but I have a, a guy I know who does um, marketing for his own company. And he has what he calls an avatar. It's an alter ego that he has on Facebook that says wonderful things about his company. And then he, re, he re, uh, uh, forwards those Facebook things and, and the same thing with Twitter. He, he has a, a false person, if you will. And, and frankly, I look at that and say, well, that's a little bit stretching the limit of credibility. In, in <laughs> yeah, my, it is. And, and to some degree, ethics. But I, I have difficulty arguing with his need to spread positive feedback about his company because he he claims that it's a way to offset some of the negative feedback. He's in a, uh, a consumer-oriented business, a retail business. So he's trying to create positive feedback for his company, and that's one way of spreading the word, is creating all of this positive feedback through what he calls an avatar. At some point, though, don't you, Robert, have to follow up with a good company with uh, substance and with a good product? Because even if you do that and you're just promoting yourself, but in a way that is is sort of, it, you're saying maybe it's not ethical, but um, it's all part of the market, whoever, with his marketing plan. But you still have to have a good product, right? You still have to have well, good service. You still have to have good quality because eventually it will catch up with you. You will get found out, Catherine. Um, I, yeah, the first issue is fix the problem. If people, people are saying something online about you or you, word of mouth gets back to you that, oh, for example, I have a client who word of mouth got back to us that, and people were complaining that we had a, a surly receptionist and it was difficult to get through to our salespeople. Well, immediately we addressed the problem. Those kinds of things, if you have any kind of bad word of mouth, fix the problem. There's a a solution that I talk about in Naked Marketing called the three R's. The first one is recognition. If Let's use an example of a restaurant. If somebody complains to you, you're the waiter, and somebody complains that the steak is too tough, the first thing is you recognize, oh my gosh, I can understand why that's a problem. Let me see what I can do about it. The second step is remedy. The second R is remedy. All right, let's take the steak back of course, you won't have to pay for it. Let me get you a replacement steak, or I'll bring you some lasagna or something else. So you've remedied the problem. The third part, and the biggest and most important part, and the one that is most often forgotten, is reinforcement. If you're a good restaurant, you will come back and you will say, here's a bottle of wine for you and your table, or let's, let's offer your whole table a free dessert, or here's a gift certificate for $20 for your next visit to our restaurant. And if you follow the three R's, the recognition, remedy, and reinforcement that are, that are laid out in Naked Marketing, I guarantee you, you will, you will turn those complainers into brand loyal customers, Catherine. If you think about it, and you have an opportunity to go to that restaurant or any restaurant again, will you go to a restaurant where it's an unknown if they will follow up on a, on a complaint? Or will you go to a restaurant 
where you know that if you do have a problem, they will follow up and they will say, we will, follow, we will recognize remedy and reinforce that. Which one would you I, choose? You know, I think that's such an important point, Robert. Not just in restaurants. I think anything that I buy or purchase, or I, I always find that when I get into a situation, if there's something wrong with the product, and the company or, and or the person who represents the company is blaming me for it, very often they'll say, "Well, did you?" You know, they'll they'll kind of blame the victim. And and once they start to do that, I never want to buy the product again, or I never want to go back to that hotel or the restaurant. They have lost you as a customer. Your they brand loyalty is now zero. The objective of all good marketers, Catherine, is long-term. The long-term objective is brand loyalty. If you're going through the buying process in your mind and you think, well, I have to review all of my choices. Am I going to buy this kind of car or that kind of car? And you start doing your research. What marketers really want you to do is be brand loyal so that when you have a need, I need a new car, You don't even think about competition. You just say, I want this car because I've had it in the past or I've learned good things about it or I am brand loyal because I know if I have a problem, it will be fixed. I want that car. That's brand loyalty. It's very big in in the automobile industry. It's very big in the the biggest category is cigarettes. Uh, We're very brand loyal to our cigarettes and our beer. Those are the two number one and number two categories for brand loyalty. But if you think about it, you can turn just about any category into brand loyal category if you follow those three R's, if you are very good at offering a quality product, good service at a reasonable price, quality service and price. Yeah. Do you think that customers are forgiving? I mean, I consider myself forgiving. I do want to go back to the same dealership. It's easier for me. I know them. I know, uh, you know, I understand the company. You know, they understand my car. So even if they do make a mistake, I'm pretty forgiving. So I think that, you know, companies really do have an opportunity, an easy opportunity to please their customers and establish this brand loyalty. I don't want to go to, I mean, to another place and have to establish a new relationship. So they got me. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, all of the things that you've mentioned will keep me there. Well, again, I think it comes back to what you said earlier, quality, service, or price. Of those three, service has to be the most important. We talked earlier in this conversation that quality is, is very much a commodity because of the Internet. We can duplicate quality fairly quickly throughout uh, uh, the marketing world. What we can't duplicate is service. Service is a person-to-person issue. And I think it's so important because uh, of, the, of the idea that we want to buy from people. We don't buy from companies. We buy from a person. And that's why salespeople, when they leave a company, oftentimes take their customers with them. It's, it's because we tend to want to buy from a person. We're loyal to that person because that person has been good to us. If you know the service person at your car dealership and he's been good to you or she's been great to you, you're going to want to go back. It's what you know. And if that service has been good, you're willing to pay a little bit more in price. Those companies that only compete on price, frankly, it's a tough, tough business. Your margins are thin. If you make a mistake, you're going to lose money. I'm, I'm a firm believer that service is the most important. Of those three, quality, service, and price, I always say service is going to be the one that creates brand loyalty. And brand loyalty reduces your promotion expense. If you don't have to sell to a large portion of your customers because they are loyal to you, that saves an awful lot of money on, on spending on marketing and, and promotion. 
Well, Robert Grady, Naked Marketing, The Bare Essentials, uh, it, it really has been a pleasure to talk to you today. And obviously, I learned a lot, and I'm sure my listeners have too. But we have to know, we only have a couple minutes left. So where can we get Naked Marketing? Naked Marketing is available in all major bookstores. Uh, if they don't have it on their shelves yet, they will uh, be able to order for and have it for you within about three days. It's also available on, on major online sources like BN, Barnes & Noble, BN.com, uh, Amazon.com, and it's available as an ebook uh, or a Kindle version, anything you want, just about anywhere and everywhere. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Oh, Catherine, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. We're going to take a break right now. Uh, Our next guest uh, coming up is Dr. Guy Winch, Ph.D., and his new book is Emotional First Aid. So don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your host uh, on The Catherine Zox Show, your social worker with a microphone on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your host of The Catherine Zox Show. I'm your social worker with the microphone. And uh, you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Guy Winch, Ph.D. Guy uh, holds a, uh, clinical, a, a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from NYU, New York University, and has a private practice in Manhattan. He's written several books. He's a member of the American Psychological Association, and his new book – is, which we're going to be talking about today is Emotional First Aid, Practical Strategies for Treating Failure, Rejection, Guilt, and Other Everyday Psychological Injuries. Welcome to the show, Dr. Winch. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. All right, so we're going to be talking about, in your book, uh, emotion, I love the title of the book, Emotional First Aid. Um, you say... In the book, Americans today, more than ever, I guess, face regular emotional assaults, which come from stresses at work, financial pressures, relationship problems, home problems, life problems. Um, 
and the accumulation of these psychological in, injuries can interfere with our functioning and cause long-term emotional harm. So what do we do about it? How do we help ourselves, uh, which is what this book is about, helping ourselves? Yes, and I, I really think that it's an interesting thing we have right now in our culture because we're told that we shouldn't sweat the small stuff. And obviously we should see maybe a professional when it comes to the big things, but there's this huge range in between of these medium, smallish, medium, sometimes medium plus uh, psychological injuries that we sustain from daily kinds of events, like when we feel, when we get rejected, when we fail, when we uh, get caught in cycles of brooding and rumination, when we feel lonely, all these kinds of things, when we feel guilt, it just happens to us on such a regular basis, and we don't know how to deal with these kinds of assaults on our emotions and on our psychology. We're not aware in what ways they impact us. We're not aware that they do impact us even sometimes, and they can really accumulate an impact, not just our long-term psychological health, but really our physical health as well. And so there's this huge gap, I felt, in the basic knowledge the public has about these kinds of injuries and what they can do about them, and that's really why I wrote the book. Yeah, and I think that's so true because we tend to focus on the big stuff, the crisis, you know, if someone dies or you go through a divorce or uh, you lose all your money, you go bankrupt. Okay, we know we have to do something about that either ourselves or we have to get uh, uh, professional help. But as you're saying, the small stuff, which we should sweat the small stuff because that has an impact on our health, physical and mental, is something that we confront every single day, all of us. I don't think everybody gets, no one gets away with it. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So let's take some of those everyday occurrences. How, how can, what should we be doing? How should we be handling whatever these rejections or disappointments or stress or whatever they are? Let, let's be real specific about what they are and what to do about them. So first of all, I think that we have to be aware that if something is nagging at us for a while, if, you know, we, we had that we experienced this rejection or we experienced a failure, if it's nagging at us, because I think as a therapist, and most therapists will be able to attest to this, people will sometimes come in and say, oh, this small thing happened five, six days ago, but yet they want to spend an entire session on it. And so if you want to spend an entire session on it, it wasn't that small. And so if something's nagging at us, you know, I mean, look, you can fail a midterm in college or you can get rejected by somebody, you know, on an online dating scenario and it'll sting or it'll hurt and you'll shrug it off in a few hours or a day. But if it stays with you after a day, if you're thinking about it, if it's nagging at you, that's a sign that there's a deeper injury there that you actually do have to take care of. So my first point to people is be aware that if something is nagging at you, if you're still thinking about it, if it still bothers you, if you still find yourself getting upset or angry or hurt when you think about it and it's been a day or two or certainly if it's more, then to me that's a sign that there's a certain injury there that you need to take care of. And you say we have to take care of it in the same way that we take care of our small, <clears throat> excuse me, physical injuries. We have a medicine chest, as you describe, full of all kinds of aids and ointments and band-aids if we skin our knee or get a cut or, uh, you know, we have an allergy and we take care of it. We don't necessarily run to a specialist. So we can kind of compare that to the, the, the injuries, the, the psychological injuries, injuries that we have every day. Um, give us an example. Give us an example that the, maybe an occurrence that happens to most of us or many of us on an everyday basis. Something All that right, we so, need. Yeah, yeah. So sorry. Um, yeah. So I think the most common kind of injury that we get um, is rejection, because there's so many fronts in which we interface with other people in which we might feel rejected. And so, you know, certainly anyone who's in the dating world, 
Well, that's a gauntlet. You just have to, you know, I mean, even on online dating. With online dating, it's interesting because a lot of these websites, you know, they have these, uh, they're called the different things. It's called a nudge. It's called a wink. It's called, a, you know, people, you can see who's seeing your profile. And people are actually feeling rejected by people they've never had any contact with. In other words, you've looked at the other person's profile, but they looked at yours and didn't contact you. Or you sent them a wink or a nudge or whatever it is, and they didn't wink back. And again, and people do feel really disappointed or hurt by this sometimes. And again, it's interesting. It's someone you've never even met. Um, but that's in the dating sphere. And when you're looking for jobs, um, you know, and, and you're going on these, sending out all these resumes, and you think you're perfect for this position, your resume says you are, yet they don't call you back. And people with certain professions, anyone in the performing arts deals with rejection on a regular basis because, you know, they're going to auditions and they're going to all these, and they're sending out their slides of their artwork if they're artists. And so any creative person deals with rejection. They're sitting in an ad agency and pitching an idea that no one's accepting. And in social media is a whole new frontier for us because, you know, we, we have our friends uh, posts and, oh, they, they, they posted a shot of their new baby and we liked it, but we posted a shot of our new baby and they didn't and we can feel really bad about it. So rejection, and even actually in marriages, let me just say, a lot of times people feel a lot of rejection from their spouse. You know, they, they, they make a sexual overture and it gets rebuffed or they, 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 you know, they buy a new outfit and they put it on and they hear nothing from the spouse and they feel rejected and hurt by it. So rejection is all around us. And what we know about rejection is that it causes a number of different uh, psychological wounds. It, it impacts our, uh, it hurts, first of all. I mean, it hurts our feelings fundamentally, but it also impacts our self-esteem. And it can, you know, it can impact our self-esteem in a small or in a large way. And sometimes it's not proportional to the actual rejection. It's the context, it's how we're feeling in general. We might be feeling especially vulnerable. And then even a small rejection can really hurt our self-esteem. And they, they also create surges of anger and of aggression that we might not be aware of. And we might actually be then taking out on other people around us who are innocent. And they also destabilize our fundamental need to feel as if we belong to some kind of core group, you know, a holdover from our tribal days where we needed to feel that we are part of our tribe. And so there are a variety of psychological injuries that, you know, the research tells us that we sustain when we get rejected. And we're so unaware of most of them. We're aware our feelings hurt. We might aware that our ego is bruised, but pretty much that's it. And, and we're not even aware of the extent to which those injuries happen. But those are the big injuries that happen when we get rejected. And again, they can, they can really impact us sometimes irregardless of the size of the actual experience based on context and how we're feeling in that moment. Can there also be, uh, a, uh, Dr. Winch, can there also be a cumulative effect of, of rejections? I mean, we're involved today, many of us, most of us, in so many different areas. Uh, you know, we're running around work and home, and uh, we just do so many different kinds of things that you might have a series of just small rejections, and then they, they, they build up. It's not that anyone on its own is a major rejection, like you didn't get this job, or you lost your job, or, but, or that your wife left you, or your partner left you. And, and so that can have the cumulative effect of all of many small rejections can have an impact, I imagine, on you physically and psychologically. Absolutely. And you know what, I, I, I use this analogy sometimes because it's an interesting one to me. I, I once had this really bad um, sprain in my uh, arm and I, I kept trying to do things to my arm and I, to, you know, I iced and I did this and I did that and I finally went to a doctor and he said, you know, the problem is not your arm. The problem is something in your back and I'm like, well, why am I feeling it in my arm? He goes, because there's a problem with your back and so you're compensating by doing this with your shoulder which in turn is doing this to your arm. There was this ricochet. This did this, did this, did that. And that happened psychologically 
all the time. In other words, we might sustain the small rejection. Our feelings are hurt. And when our feelings are hurt, we might be more reluctant to put ourselves out there in similar situations. And so we don't put ourselves out there in similar situations. And then we start to feel a little bit more withdrawn from people. And then we start to feel lonely. And then when we start to feel lonely, we start to feel depressed because we're not socializing, etc., etc. So it's, it's the accumulation of the same kind of wound, but it's often just the fact that we're not treating the actual original wound, and it has this ricochet effect. It just keeps rippling out into larger and larger ripples in the pond, where since we haven't taken care of the original ripple, it just, it's, it's becoming bigger and bigger, and the rejection is turning into loneliness, which is turning into depression, which is really impacting our self-esteem and our confidence, etc., etc. So it's very important to try and catch these cycles, and this is why you know, I call the book Emotional First Aid, because it's that same principle. If you actually treat the original wound, and quickly, you'll prevent all these ripple effects. You'll prevent it from, you know, having this cascade in which it gets worse and worse and starts to impact you in much more substantial ways. So in the book, you tell us or you show us how to recognize that this is happening to us. I mean, sometimes I think we we don't recognize it. We go on to next. You know, we've been rejected. We get another rejection. All of this is impacting on us. But we really haven't. We don't recognize it. We have to be aware of it. So that's the first step. But then the second step, what do we do about it without going to a professional, without going to a counselor? How do we address the problem or the feeling or the negative feeling? So, you know, in in, in the book, the way I uh, divide the chapters is I discuss in the first part of each, each chapter is devoted to a topic. So I start the book with rejection, for example, but in that first part of the chapter, I discuss the way rejections affect us. I discuss the the experiments and the science that led us to know these things. And I, you know, for example, I enumerate those four wounds that I mentioned earlier. But then in the second part of the chapter, I, I suggest specific treatments that people can use that will address each of those four wounds. And so you need to know in what ways you might have been affected. So you need to know like what of the treatments you need to apply to soothe these different wounds. And so just for example, when it comes to your self-esteem after a rejection, one of the first and most important things we need to do is to stop the bleeding. Because when it comes to self-esteem, we self-injure more than we uh, think. In other words, once we got rejected, once we, you know, we went on that date, or it was the third date, and, and the person you know, said they weren't interested in uh, a nicer way or not, then we often will feel really hurt and disappointed, and we'll start enumerating all our faults, and we'll start thinking, well, you know, it's because I'm not tall enough, I'm not blonde enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not handsome enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not smart enough, whatever it is, and we'll really start to savage our own self-esteem. So one of the things I suggest there, one of the, one of the things I suggest and there are several steps you have to take there, but one of them is to stop the bleeding. You have to kind of come up with a way to formulate what happened, to frame what happened to you in a way that doesn't, actu- that doesn't actually injure your self-esteem worse than it's been injured. In other words, what specifically happened in that dating example, just to use an example, is that one person didn't think you were a match for them for whatever reason. And I would argue that if you went out with them for one date or two or three, and really even if for a month, you simply don't know them well enough to know exactly what the reason is. And it's unlikely that they told you because people don't usually come and say, you know, I kind of like people who are more blonde than you. That's just not how people break up with people. They just say, look, it's not working out, etc. But so it's important to formulate that in a way that doesn't take away from who you are, to really see it as this was not a match. Because dating is like that. It's a match. It's a key to a lock. And you might think that you fit that lock, but if they think you didn't fit that lock, then ultimately you don't. 
And even if they would have given you a chance, it wouldn't have worked out most likely because there wasn't a good fit there. They figured it out before you did, but ultimately that's the situation because whatever it is that they thought wasn't a match is not a match, and it wouldn't have bothered you as much as them if you tried to do that later you know, and, and, and continued a relationship that wasn't going to work. So you have to find a way to frame that in a way that doesn't from you, you know, uh, I suggest the old, you know, if they, if, you know, it's not me, it's you, if they tell you, you know, it's not me, it's, it's not you, it's me, I'm the one, then believe them, it's about them, it's not about you, and, and that's the thing to keep in mind. All right, well, let's, okay, that's rejection, let's go on to failure, because failure is something, I think, obviously, that uh, we experience, hopefully not every day, but uh, Failure damages our self-esteem, and it, 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 then we begin, you know, we failed at one thing, or we see ourselves as a failure, and we draw conclusions about our skills, our abilities, and our capacities, and, and we think that may be highly inaccurate. So, let's suggest the failure. What do we do when we, have, we experience small failures? So, one of the things that's interesting about failure is that it really causes a distortion to our perceptions. It really makes us really believe something that's not true. We really believe after a failure that that goal uh, that we had or the task that we were trying to perform is actually more difficult than it truly is. We really believe that when it's not true. We really believe that our abilities are not sufficient when that is not true. The thing about failure that's really interesting is it really provides you a great roadmap to what you might have done uh, wrong. It, it really tells you where you can change and improve things so you will have more success in the future. And so because the thing is about failure that's useful is we tend to make the same mistakes. We tend to have the same blind spots. If we are the kind of people who rush things, um, then we're going to rush things usually. If we have time management problems, that's going to be our issue. In other words, we're going to have the same kinds of mistakes. So within, if we can explore our failure and really look at it in the most objective of terms, it will really provide the keys to how we can succeed in the future. It'll tell us what we need to do differently, what we need to watch out for, where our weaknesses are that we need to shore up. And then we can take care of all those things because all those things are in our control. We can take care of all of them and have a much more uh, likelihood of success in the future. However, the problem is that after a failure, we feel we're much less likely to succeed in the future. We feel the opposite of the way we should. Rather than realizing we've just been given a roadmap, we feel as if we've just been stymied. And so we really have to get over that perceptual distortion because we are going to feel convinced about the way we see things, even though we're extremely wrong. Uh, you know, I think that's really important because, and I think you pointed this out in the book, because if, if we get kind of tied into our failure and feeling bad about ourselves rather than understanding why we failed and, and actually using it as a positive to not do it again, we don't want to impart that fear of failure to our children. And, and I think because it can go on from generation to generation. So unless you really, it's really important to address that because children pick up on it. You know, it's very interesting with fear of failure. It's, 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 I'm very glad you said that because there are studies that demonstrate that fear of failure is transmittable in families, that parents can actually give it to their children because a fear of failure is something that impacts us consciously but also unconsciously. And parents can send and often do, and studies tell us, that parents who have a fear of failure 
or are, who are too invested in success for the sake of success can pass on this fear of failure to their children because when their children fail, they respond to them in ways both verbally and unverbally and both consciously and unconsciously in ways that let the children know that this is not okay, that this is something to be ashamed of, this is something that you know, will really you know, make your parents feel disappointed in you. It, feel, it can be very, very harsh to the children, even when it's not meant to be, even when the parents don't intend it to be. They can, you know, the hug is a little bit cold and the smile is not quite there and children pick up on it. And so then they start to feel like, oh my goodness, fail, you know, success is so incredibly important. What happens if I fail? And then the stakes become not just about the actual task, but about the love and regard of their parents, which is a huge amount of stakes then to put in for a children. And they develop their own fear of failure. And so, yes, it's so important to be on top of these things because we really can transmit some of our, you know, uh, not best coping styles and our, our, our bad ways of dealing with things to our children. And that's the last thing most parents want to do. What about guilt? How does guilt fit into this? Because, I mean, that's part, the, you talk about guilt in the book, how we deal with our nagging guilt. Um, how does that fit into these kinds of everyday um, disappointments or, you know, big, small disappointments. So guilt is a little bit different because it has one, one difference there. Guilt, when it's in small doses, is great. And I call it even it's a little heroic because what guilt does is it swoops in and it protects your relationships. It lets you know that you, something you might be thinking of doing or something you've done might have caused harm to another person. It reminds you that you have to call your mother because it's her birthday and you might be in a meeting and you'll think about it ten times every five minutes like a snooze alarm that keeps going off going, oh, remember, don't forget when the meeting's over to call your mother. Don't forget to call your mother. Don't forget to bring flowers home. It's Valentine's Day. So guilt is very, very useful because it really does help us. It reminds us of, you know, standards of, of things, and it really helps protect our relationships. So in small doses, it's terrific. However, when it's unresolved or when it's excessive, when it's in big doses, then, then it goes from being a hero to being a villain. Because if you can imagine that snooze alarm that, you know, that you'll sit through the meeting and it'll probably be quite distracting in the meeting because you keep saying to yourself, oh, you know, don't, don't forget to call your mother or don't forget to pick up flowers on the way home or whatever it is. If that snooze alarm, snooze alarm just doesn't go off, if it just keeps ringing and ringing and ringing, which is what happens when our guilt is unresolved or when it's excessive, then that's just extremely distracting. Then it's really not doing something useful at that point. It's doing something rather damaging. And that's the problem with guilt. It's great in small doses. It's really a problem in larger doses. Because the other problem we have with guilt is that when it's unresolved, and look, the, the reason it's usually unresolved is most of us are decent people. We'll, if we did something that harmed another person, we will try and render some kind of apology. Oh, you know, I'm sorry about that. And sorry I forgot to call mom or sorry about the flowers. I'll get you some tomorrow. Whatever it is. And the other person might feel like, well, if we apologize, they're obliged to say fine. But really, the apology wasn't good. And the forgiveness wasn't authentic either. And this tension remains. But we then feel that we apologized. Why should there be tension? You know, if we apologized, we took responsibility. And so then we start to uh, distance ourselves from that person or to get a little bit withdrawn because they make us feel guilty. So, you know, each time, you know, then we're thinking of calling our mother, but we're annoyed because she's making us feel guilty, even though we apologize for forgetting to call, etc. And the problem is with, with, with our guilt is that it really can be poisonous to our relationships. And, and just one more thing about the apologies. And so what the studies tell us is that what really went wrong there is that our apologies are terrible. 
we get stuck at this five-year-old age of apologizing where you drag the five-year-old into the room to say, I'm sorry, and then once they've said it, they're considered forgiven. And we kind of stay at that level. We'll, you know, we'll say the words, well, I'm sorry, and feel like we've taken responsibility by doing that, but we haven't because that, that apology is not really sincere. We haven't really conveyed that we understand the damage we did. We haven't really conveyed, you know, we haven't really said to our mother, look, I know your birthday is really important to you. You must have been sitting up by the phone waiting for my call and feeling more disappointed and more disappointed. And it probably ruins your whole day because I didn't call. And, you know, know, your child isn't calling. I'm sure that's terribly disappointing. So I realize I probably ruined your birthday and I'm so, 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 that would be more of a version that's taking responsibility and that's conveying to the other person that you get the impact of the actions or inactions that cause them harm. And that's when they're more likely to actually give you authentic forgiveness. But it's one of those steps that we're not uh, good at taking. And in the book, I lay out these very specific formulas, and they are formulas. It's like baking a cake for how to create a, a, an effective apology. And it's like a cake in that you need all the ingredients <laughs> for it to be tasty. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's so important, and I think obviously important, because I think today, particularly, you see so many, whether it's leaders or politicians or whomever, uh, I'm sorry, I, you know, th- these apologies, kind of empty, I guess I would call them, they're empty, and they're not the kind of apologies that you describe in the book. There has to be some, some, some meat to it. There has to be some understanding, some empathy. All of that has to be involved in the apology. Otherwise, it's just, it's just, it's just saying words that don't mean anything. Um, and, and I think, you know, the example of uh, politicians cheating on their wives who go in front of millions of people and say, I'm sorry, uh, as if that's it, without really, you wonder, is there any kind of substance to this in terms of how that person understands how he or she affected the life of their spouse or their partner? So, but it seems to me that it's really a big problem today. So I think that's a, that's an issue. Well, but um, obviously our, our our listeners have to be readers and, and go to your yeah. book and, and yeah get the strategies that because that not is just important. The, the, the politicians, I want to add, you know, another category of people who are frequently apologizing and not doing a good job is the athletes, the professional athletes, because yeah. they open their mouth and say the wrong thing all the time, as do celebrities. And it's amazing to me because those apologies that are so bad and everyone listening to them thinking, wow, that's so bad. Remember, those are written by professional publicists. I mean, actually, that's the best version they could come up with. That's not their own version. That was written by publicists and who went over it and thought this is the best we can do, and they still stink. So, yes, that's a real problem that we don't know how to apologize in today's society. Yeah. So, I mean, we've just kind of, you know, we've given kind of an overview of the book, but uh, let's talk about uh, uh, where we can uh, get information, not only about the book, but about you and what you're doing. I know that you also... uh, have written in Psychology Today articles on the or, or an article on the seven habits of highly emotional people. So, um, I, you know, I recommend that too, PsychologyToday.com. But specifically for this book, is there a website? Um, the website that people can find out more and is GuyWinch.com. That's G-U-Y-W-I-N-C-H.com. And you'll have links there to all the articles I write for Psychology Today. I write also for Huffington Post. Sometimes the websites like eHarmony and things like that. So there's a lot of articles you can find. That article you mentioned, The Seven Habits of uh, Emotionally Healthy People, is actually featured in the magazine Psychology Today uh, this month. It's on the newsstands uh, this month. Um, and it would be in a magazine as well, so people can find it on the website as well as in the magazine. And they'll find other useful articles as
as well. They'll also find links to where they can find the book. The book is in hardcover. It's an e-book, both on iTunes and in other, you know, uh, uh, Nook and, and uh, uh, Kindle. And it's also in uh, audiobook, which they can find on audible.com as well as on iTunes. So there's a variety of ways they can find the book and, and get the book. Great. Dr. Guy Winch, Ph.D., Emotional First Aid, Practical Strategies for Treating Failure, Rejection, Guilt, and Other Everyday Psychological Injuries. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's been a great pleasure, and we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and your host on the Catherine Zox Show, VoiceAmericaVariety.com, and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.